Man. Can you just, just for a moment, can you even imagine walking out of your tent as an Israelite at night and looking across at that? Or at least something like that. And, and the power, the, the amazing thing was not the tabernacle itself. I mean, it's just, it's a tent within four walls of, of material. Nothing special, nothing fantastic to look at, but to see the light of God above that. And this was the way it was. It, it was for 40 years as the Israelites wandered in the wilderness. From the very beginning of Sinai, when they first constructed the tabernacle, even before that, the light was there. But I, I just, I mean, even just now, looking at it with the lights off in here, the thought of, of being, especially if you had a front row tent, you know, you're right there, you walk out the front, and there is the light of God in front of you. And in the morning, you walk out, and there's the cloud. And, and I was thinking how awesome it would be at sunset when the, when the cloud is becoming the fire, and the fire is becoming the cloud. You're seeing more and more fire and less cloud. How amazing a thing it was that God did there for the people. And they needed it. The people needed it. They needed to see a physical representation. They needed something to help grow their infantile faith. Much as people in the world today need miracles, need the supernatural to grow, especially new faith. I was thinking when Brian and Ruth Young were, were visiting us, Brian shared some fantastic stories of supernatural things that are going on in the mission field. We often hear these stories. When missionaries come back to churches, they like to tell these stories, and we in churches sit in awe and just say, how can this be? Brian told a story about how they, they came to one village and they were to preach the gospel there and they wanted to share the gospel, but the chief of the village said, there's no sharing here unless you make it rain. <laughs> That's a pretty tall order. And so they began to pray for rain. They began to pray that God would make it rain. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. This was, by the way, not during the rainy season. It was during the dry season. And Brian tells the story that about midway through the night they began to hear the Pat, pat, patter, 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 patter on the, on the roofs of the huts. And they went outside and it was a light sprinkling that got heavier and heavier and heavier. And as morning came on, they went outside and it was just a downpour. But what was amazing is he said there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Now we sit here in America and hear things like that and, and we, we have one of two reactions. We either go, wow, or we go, yeah, come on. There was a cloud somewhere. It was behind the hills and the wind was just blowing the rain over and you didn't see it. But, you know, there's a logical explanation for it. And that, by the way, is why I've always thought that we don't see the supernatural so much in America. Because of faith. Because as it tells us in the Bible, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus couldn't do couldn't do miracles in his own hometown. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 tells us he goes back to his hometown. He tries to do miracles. He can't do them there. Literally, he could not perform any miracles because of the people's lack of faith. So I've always looked at that person and thought, that's the deal in America. That's why we don't see the dead raised. That's why we don't see people healed, at least not on an ongoing and typical basis. That's why we miss the supernatural, because of our lack of faith. And I think that's half the answer. Again, when Brian and Ruth were here, Brian said something. Sharon Jurecki, in the afternoon on the Sunday that Brian spoke, the elders got together with Brian and Ruth and, and, and our wives and we all ate together and we spent some time talking and, and Sharon raised her hand she said, I, I have a question I just have to ask you. What do you tell people in America who ask why we don't see these things happening here? He had told two or three fantastic supernatural stories of God's intervention on the mission field. 
and Brian said part of it is the faith issue, he, he believes. Part of it is that Americans just are too skeptical. They just don't want to believe it, and therefore God's not going to do it. But he said there's another reason, and it's something I want to share with you before we get going, in Luke chapter 16. So before we get to the book of Exodus, flip over to Luke 16. And understand tonight that I've had four weeks of not teaching, and so I've got a lot to share. No, don't worry, I'll get you out of here. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Brian went right to this parable, and I love his use of it, and he shared something in it that Jesus said clearly, obviously, I had never, ever thought before, especially in this application. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyous, joyously living in splendor every day, and a poor man named Lazarus, who was laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. By the way, this is the first time in the Bible we understand a division in Hades. A division in what the Hebrews would call Sheol. For in the Old Testament, all they understood was Sheol, the place of the dead, the holding place, the place where you went. They didn't have quite that much understanding about what it literally meant. Jesus tells this parable and he lifts a veil about what happens when people die. At least before the crucifixion. Before the resurrection. He says there's a place, Hades, and it has a paradise side and it has a torment side to it. And that's where people go depending on where they're at with the Lord. And there's a great chasm that separates the two. Well, he goes on in his story and he says, In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, verse 23, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And the rich man cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, now pay attention, watch this. He said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him, him who? The poor man. The poor man Lazarus. I beg that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them. So that they will not also come to this place of torment. Send the man. In other words, I want a resurrection. Resurrect Lazarus. Do a miracle. Something supernatural. Send dead Lazarus back to life to my father's house and to my brothers. And have him tell them. And what is it that Abraham says? He says, and listen, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They've got the word. Let them hear them. And he goes on and says, but no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And Brian said, and I totally agree, here's the deal. Part of the reason we don't see the supernatural so much in America is because we have the most supernatural thing God has ever done, His Word. 
We have the supernatural. We have the power of God in the Word. As you guys have seen, as we study through, we're amazed, we're overwhelmed, we're comforted, we're lifted up, we're encouraged, we're challenged, we're convicted. All of this by a book? Yes, by the Word of God, which is the most powerful thing we have. And once He's given the Word, that's what we need. Do you remember when Brian spoke and he took us kind of on that little wheel that God starting His work in the Middle East and working His way around the world and now heading back into the Middle East? And in the third world, in these countries where Jesus' name is not known, the supernatural is important, as it was for Israel, for a people who did not yet understand or know God. He gave them the supernatural. He gave them something tangible. He said, I'm going to show you my power. And then, then I'm going to give you my word. And I want you to feed on my word. Because my word will sustain you in a way that miracles cannot. Miracles cannot sustain us like God's word. Miracles are wonderful, exciting, powerful, life-changing. But they are not as consistent as the word. And as we see with Israel and with the Israelites in their travels, even with this, the tabernacle in the center of the camp, and the fire of God every single night, they still lost faith. They still misunderstood. They still messed up. They still didn't get it. It wouldn't be until the word began to get into people's lives that the change really took place. The Word of God is the greatest sign. It is filled with the supernatural and the Word is what we need. Why? Because the Word is what points us to the one who we need and that's Jesus. And that's Jesus himself. Well, when we last met, I was still without a dwelling place to call my own and and now we have our dwelling place and it's been an interesting journey. I'll tell you stories about that another time. But we also four weeks ago left here with God telling Moses about a dwelling place. The tabernacle. The tabernacle means dwelling. Dwelling means tabernacle. When Jesus in the New Testament says, or when when John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, you recall that the word dwelt is tabernacled. It's the same word. That's what it means. It's a dwelling place. But gang, four weeks back, that tabernacle, this transportable temple tent, this movable meeting place, we saw was actually a portrait of much more than meets the eye. As exciting and wonderful it is to see this picture, to know as an Israelite that you've got this picture of of the Lord before you, there's much more. We talked about how the tabernacle is a picture of the Christian life. We talked about how the tabernacle is a picture, a portrait of heaven, as the book of Hebrews goes into depth telling us, describing. And the fact that God was so careful to be very specific with the tabernacle because so much of it were representations of the heavenly. But the tabernacle, and the most powerful thing about it that we have seen and will continue to see tonight, is that the tabernacle is first and foremost a picture of Jesus. This structure has Jesus all over it, everywhere. And tonight is no exception as we get into Exodus 26. And you can flip your Bibles over there, Exodus chapter 26. And let's pray for a moment. Father, I I ask for insight and inspiration tonight, as it is really good to be back here in the barn on a a midweek and to have our Bibles open together again. A short time, but Father, so much has gone on in my life, and it's so many distracting and, and even discouraging things, and it is so encouraging to be back here. I felt it during worship as Les prayed what a gift it is to us to be able to worship you. 
And Father, I, I sense it now as we have your word open. And I'm looking forward to what you had to share with us. I, I have the insight or the, the, you know, the foreknowledge a little bit here because of studying these things. I know what we're going to talk about. But I pray, Father, you would guide us down the path you would have us go. And I pray, Father, that you would give us ears to hear what you want us to hear. Lord, I recognize that there is something that happens between the words that come out of my mouth and then what actually gets in to people's hearts. And what's amazing to me is it's always different for different people. So Lord, I pray that you will look at us tonight, each as individuals as much as a community, and you will speak to each of us individually what we need to hear from your word. And touch our hearts the way only you can. And guide our thoughts by your Holy Spirit and be our guide and our teacher. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Exodus chapter 26, we ask the question, what is God doing here with all this specificity? I've read about the tabernacle many times in my life, and each time I get there, I just kind of rush through it. Especially when you read chapter 26, you can read through it quickly and go, man, it's all about clasps and, and tenons and curtains and cubits and, and all bars of vacation, all this stuff, and it's just kind of back to the old blueprint design. It was a little easier when we first started looking at the tabernacle because God started in the middle of it, in the heart of it, with the Ark of the Covenant, you may remember that, and begins describing the furniture as we work our way out. But now it's just the structure. And I have often in the past wondered why it's so important that the blueprints are in the Bible. Why is it here? I know it was important for Israel. They needed the blueprints because they were going to build the tabernacle. But why for us? Why do we still have it? Why should we study it? You'll see tonight what God is doing. This is not just random architectural design. Revelation 19.10 tells us the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, all biblical prophecy is about Jesus. It all points to Jesus one way or another. That's the reason for the prophecy. Psalm chapter 40, verse 7, Jesus speaking, he's quoted prophetically here, and he says, In the scroll of the book it is written of me. A verse we've read many times. And again, John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, Jesus, became flesh. And the pictures and illustrations in the Old Testament are not coincidental, they are intentional. They're the work of a father pointing his children to his son, Jesus Christ. So as we follow along the words of the Lord, spoken to Moses as blueprints for this dwelling place, we see Jesus. Now real quickly, again looking at the tabernacle, I'm showing you go back this one slide. Um, just, you can probably see this yourself. But so we see and understand what's going on here with the tabernacle. In the very front, once you go in that door, and the door itself is a picture of Jesus, but we'll see that in a few weeks. Once you get in there, the very first thing that meets your eyes is the altar, the bronze altar. Straight back from that, in front of the tabernacle tent itself, oh, perfect. Right here is the bronze ladder. Bronze ladder is where the priest would wash before entering into the actual tabernacle. Once they got inside, What's called the tent of meeting, and the Israelites could all meet in here, but only the priests could go inside. We're going to look at this structure tonight. When you get inside, this is divided right about here, with the front section being the holy place, and the back section being the holy of holies. You may recall we talked about this last week, and I'm doing this for those of you who are, who are visual learners. So, in the front section of the holy place, you've got on the left side of the holy place, the golden lampstand which we see the, a marvelous picture of the Holy Spirit. On the right side of the holy place, there's a table of showbread, 
where the bread was put out every day and it was, all this was cared for was ministry of the priests. And then a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place and right up against the veil and connected to the veil was the altar of incense. The altar of incense being that picture of the prayers of the saints. And that altar of incense, that incense was kept burning 24-7 by the priests. Once a year, the high priest would go behind the veil where we know was kept the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat on top of the Ark. That's it. That's the entire tabernacle. It truly is that simple. And when God created this whole thing, you see this masterful design that anybody can understand. But as you begin to pick it apart and look at the different aspects of it, you're blown away by the portrait of Jesus. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to begin tonight by looking at four coverings. And we're not going to go through the whole chapter tonight. We'll get probably about halfway through, maybe three-fourths of the way through. But starting in verse 1 of chapter 26... We're going to see the first of four coverings. And again, if you look at the picture, the tabernacle itself, the coverings we're talking about are all that go over the, the, the tent on the inside there. Okay? And there are four of them. It's not just one draped over there. are four different ones. You'll see why. The first covering, and if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. The first covering is fine twisted linen. Covering number one is fine twisted linen. Let's read about that. Verse one. Moreover... You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. You shall make them with cherubim, that is angels, the work of a skillful workman. The length of each curtain shall be twenty-eight cubits, that would be about forty-two feet. And the width of each curtain, four cubits, or six feet. So we're talking forty-two by six for these curtains. All the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be joined to one another. And the other five curtains shall be joined to one another. So you have two sets of five curtains joined together, making ten curtains in a set, and then ten curtains in another set. Okay? You shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. And likewise, you shall make them on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make fifty loops in the one curtain, and you shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite each other. You shall make fifty clasps of gold, and join the curtains to one another with the clasps, so that the tabernacle will be a unit. And we read that and go, great. <laughs> so? <laughs> and you look at something like this, and again, I would read through these these design plans and go, that's nice, but what's that? How do I have anything to learn from this? Until you start to notice something that's interesting. Again, there is specificity with the design. Like, for example, take the clasps of gold. In verse 6 you have clasps of gold, but then on the second set of curtains, in verse 11, you have clasps of bronze. And then in verse 25, in the third set, you have, or, or in, in the wood that's holding it up, you have sockets of silver. Why? Is God just, again, randomly going, well, let's do that there. And, well, I think this is what I should choose. You know, I mean, is, is that what he's doing? This will look good if we do it this way. Or is there purpose and reason behind what the Lord is doing? Our Creator God, who we know is a God of grand design. Well, think about this for a moment. In the first six verses, what we have here again are four sections of five curtains attached together. One set of five curtains joined with five, and a second set of five curtains joined with five. So how many per set would that be? 
Five plus five is ten. Very good. Excellent. <laughs> Your math is right on target. So you have two sets of ten. Now think about this. In the Bible, what does the number ten immediately make you think of when you hear the ten? Commandments. The ten commandments. Most likely the Ten Commandments themselves were divided. We know there were two tablets of stone, so probably divided five commandments on one and five commandments on another. So again, you have two curtains, five and five, put together to be ten. It's a picture here of the Ten Commandments. More than that, the number ten in the Bible always speaks of law. It always speaks of God's righteous requirements and man's responsibility to fulfill those requirements if he is going to approach God. You have got to be righteous to approach God. And so the number 10 is that reminder. It is that in biblical numerology, and we're going to see a lot of numerology tonight and a lot of colors in Scripture as well that have very specific meaning. And I'll try and back all this up so you can see it as biblical. But in biblical numerology, the number 10 speaks of God's righteous requirements and man's responsibility to fulfill these requirements. Now you might say, but Rick, haven't we learned that man can't keep the commandments exactly? In the same way, the two sets of ten curtains could not stand up on their own. They would have fallen in and the tabernacle collapsed except for one other thing. Verse 6, you shall make fifty clasps of gold and join the curtains to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle will be a unit. Without the clasps of gold, you've got these curtains that would just fall down. They couldn't stand up. There's nothing to connect them, nothing to hold them together. In the same way, we can't stand up to the Ten Commandments. There's nothing to hold us together when we're trying to keep up God's righteous requirements of the law. But there are 50 clasps of gold. Gold we've already seen speaks of deity. And so it speaks here, I believe, of the deity of Jesus Christ. But why 50? Why not 48? Why not 56? Why not 72? 50 clasps of gold specifically. Is God just a masterful planner or is there more to this? Flip over to Leviticus chapter 25. By the way, while you're flipping there, we're going to get to Leviticus pretty soon. And I'm telling you, I never ever would have thought... Leviticus was a book that would be exciting to study, but I can't wait. I mean, I'm already doing a little pre-reading, and it's amazing. It's amazing. And that's not just a commercial. I mean, it's true. It really is amazing. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1. Listen to this. The Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you shall come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord, and you shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. By the way, Israel violated this law big time, which is why they spent seven years in captivity in Babylon. Because for 490 years, every seventh year, they decided they couldn't afford not to work the land. And so they kept working the land. And after 490 years of working the land, there were 70 years that were missed. And so God says, when you go into captivity in Babylon, the land is going to have 70 years of catch-up rest. 
It's going to hit those Sabbaths back. That's why they went into captivity. So going on, verse 6. All of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food. Yourself and your male and female slaves and your hired man, your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you. Even your cattle and all the animals that are in your land shall have all its crops to eat. You're also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years. How many years is that? Forty-nine. It's getting a little tougher now. Five plus five, ten. Now seven times seven, forty-nine. Stay with me. Okay? So that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely forty-nine years. Then, listen to this. Then, sound a ram's horn abroad. On the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. Now going back to Exodus 26, the number fifty in the Bible speaks of freedom. The fiftieth year is the jubilee. Listen, this year was amazing. It wasn't just a Sabbath celebration after seven years of seven, after 49 years. The 50th year was the year for the Israelites of absolute freedom. It was the year that if someone went into slavery because they got into debt and they couldn't pay their debt, they couldn't get out of it, every 50th year God said, every slave in all of Israel goes free. Everybody at that point goes home. Every debt in that year is canceled. Your visa, your MasterCard, they can't go after you anymore because in the 50th year, it's Jubilee. Can you imagine that? Wouldn't that be great? I think we ought to start some legislation in that direction in America. Every, But it can't be every 50th year. I don't have time. To have all debts canceled. And especially the debt of slavery. God says every 50th year, wherever that falls, you may have been a slave only two years. It may have been the 48th year you became a slave, but the 50th year, the jubilee comes, they founded the shofar, and home you go. 50 is the picture of liberty, of salvation, of freedom. Class of gold, speaking of the deity of Christ, we can't hold up the Ten Commandments. We can't bear up the weight of the commands of God, but the deity of Christ brings us freedom. And in this picture we see again Jesus helping His people. Jesus freeing His people. Jesus being our Jubilee. Well, back in chapter 26, you may notice the colors that God chose. Specific colors He chose to be woven into this first covering, this covering of fine twisted linen. Here are the colors. There are actually four of them, though you might only see three. He says, take the fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. Four colors there. Blue, purple, scarlet, and linen, which would have been white. So you've got blue, purple, scarlet, and white. Blue. Blue is the color of the skies. It pictures heaven. Purple is the color of royalty, and it pictures the royal king or the sovereignty of Christ. Scarlet. Scarlet. Blood red scarlet is the color of sacrifice and pictures the blood of Christ. And white linen. White linen. White is the color of righteousness. Well, how do we know that? 
Revelation chapter 19 verse 7 tells us, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Fine linen, righteousness. White is the picture of righteousness. So you have here, you have four sections of linen curtains, four colors woven into the curtains in beautiful patterns, including patterns of cherubim. And the number four here seems to be apparent. Four curtains, four different colors. The number four, both here and in the New Testament, is significant. When you think about the New Testament, what does the number four make you think of? Any guesses? Any thoughts? Think about the books of the New Testament. The Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now listen to this because the correlation is very impressive. Matthew, the book of Matthew in the Gospel, describes Jesus as the King of the Jews. Purple. The color of royalty. The King of the Jews. Mark portrays Jesus as the suffering servant. The one who sacrifices himself. Scarlet. Or red, the color of sacrifice. Luke portrays Jesus throughout his gospel as the righteous one, the perfect one, spotless, clean, white like linen. And John, in the gospel of John, John portrays the deity of Jesus as seen in blue, the color of the heavens. And there's more to it than that. I'm not going to get into tonight. But the fact that... No, I can't go there. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. I'll get there. There's something to do with the four cherubim and the faces that the cherubim have and how it ties into the four Gospels and the four curtains and all that, but it will come up. We just don't have time tonight. I'm sorry, Spencer. We'll have, we'll be here until like one in the morning, okay? The Gospels themselves then here are prefigured into this tapestry because that's what it is. We have this first covering that goes over the tabernacle, but it is a tapestry. It is a tapestry that tells a story, that paints a picture, and the Gospels themselves are seen here. By the way, speaking of scarlet, got to back up just for a second here. The word scarlet in the Hebrew is tolah. It's T-O-L-A apostrophe A-T-H would be our kind of transliteration. Tolah. For the word scarlet. But it's also that same word, tolaah, described or is translated another way in the Old Testament. It's one of two ways. It's either translated scarlet or it's translated worm. Scarlet or worm. Now why is that? Because in the Middle East, the way that they made scarlet material at the time, at least before they came up with other methods of dyeing, was there was specifically a worm, a crimson red maggot, that they would crush and squash down, and it would yield this reddish color. And they could take the reddish color then and use it as dye, and therefore you have tilaah being both worm and scarlet, because it was where scarlet, the color scarlet, came from when they would dye materials. Interesting. Worms were actually ground up and used as dipping for dyeing fabric, scarlet material. And in Psalm 22, verse 1, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is the, the prophetic psalm, the most powerful of all the psalms in the prophecy of Jesus' death, his crucifixion on the cross. Starting off with those words that Jesus called out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This psalm was written, by the way, 1,500 years before the crucifixion. Prophetically, we hear Christ crying out from the cross in this psalm. And in verse 6, 
In verse 6 it tells us, Psalm 22, 6, But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. A worm. Tolah. Scarlet. Like the blood of Christ. There's a connection here. And it's even more than that. In fact, the New International uh, Bible Encyclopedia says this about this particular word, it's worm. It says, This crimson grub, Tolaoth in the Middle East, crawls up a tree. And as it does so, it fixes itself on the limb of a tree. It bursts open, dying in the process of reproduction. And when it dies, it leaves a red spot on the tree where it dies. This tolaa, scarlet, the worm. And what's even more amazing is that the red spot itself dries and takes on a white color that flakes off and looks like snow. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 the Lord says come let us reason together though your sins be as scarlet they will be as white as snow I was reading this and an old hymn came to mind it actually was a poem first written in 1707 by Isaac Watts that reads as follows you may remember this alas and did my savior bleed and did my sovereign die would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I Thy body slain, sweet Jesus, bind and bathed in its own blood, while all exposed to wrath divine, the glorious sufferer stood. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when God the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin? Thus might I hide my blushing face. While his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. The scarlet blood of Christ, one of four colors in this first covering, this linen covering in the tabernacle. And gang, as the priests entered the tabernacle, they would see the beauty of these colors. You couldn't see it from the outside. There were three other coverings on top of this first covering, four in all. So on the outside, you didn't see this beauty. You could only see the beauty by going inside, and there you would see the colors. And there you would also see, interestingly, 20 angels, 20 cherubim woven into the very fabric. And it reminds me that Jesus in Matthew 26 tells, tells Peter to put his sword away. This was after Peter just went nuts and cut off the right ear of, of, the, of the high priest's slave. And it's a funny story, a tragic story, interesting story, but also kind of funny. Why is that? Because all of the Gospels tell it slightly differently, but pretty similarly. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we just know that one of those standing there grabbed his sword and chopped off the ear. But in John, in the Gospel of John, John says, and it was Peter, he tells on him. I love that about John. You almost get the feeling when John was writing his gospel, he was saying, i got to let people know this was Peter. It's been long enough now, the embarrassment is over, people have to know that was Peter. And so John tells us that it was Peter. But Jesus said to Peter, put away your sword. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Matthew 26, verse 52. And in verse 53, Jesus went on to say, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels 
Jesus having the authority of all the angels, being being able to call all the angels in a moment's notice. And we know from the book of Revelation that Jesus stands surrounded by worshiping cherubim in heaven at this very moment as we study him, as we look at him. So again, on the first covering, the fine twisted linen, we have this beautiful blue, purple, scarlet, and white covering. But, as beautiful as it is, it's covered over by a second covering. Covering number number two is a covering of goat's hair. It's a goat's hair blanket that was constructed and placed over it. Verse 7. Then you shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make eleven curtains in all. The length of each shall be thirty cubits, that's about forty-five feet, and the width of each curtain four cubits, or six feet, so forty-five by six. It's slightly larger, you'll notice, than the other curtain, which was forty-two by six, slightly larger to hang a little bit further over. And the width of each curtain is four cubits, and the eleven curtains... Not ten now, but eleven curtains shall have the same measurements. You shall join five curtains by themselves, and the other six curtains by themselves, and you shall double over the sixth curtain at the front of the tent. What that means, verse 9, is there will be a flap at the very front of the tent that would be doubled over and opened up. Okay? So you would actually, at this point, you would be able to see the second covering only in the open flap. Because again, there are going to be two more coverings on top of it. So when the very front of the tabernacle, you can't really see it there very well, right where it says 2 Corinthians 5.21, right behind the one there, okay? There, oh, there you go. That covering right there in the front, that shows that it's closed, but it would have been open and you would have seen this goat hair flap in front of it. Okay? That's important. Remember that just for a moment here. Goat hair. Um, okay, verse 9, we're there. Goat's hair is most likely a tough, hairy, and black covering. It was likely this covering would have been black. Back to biblical numerology, it tells us something of the significance of the numbers in putting this section together. We see there are five, uh, let's see, where are we? Verse 8. I think. Verse 9, you shall join five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and in all you've got 11. 5, 6, and 11. 5 is the number of grace in the Bible. Now, there are people who have studied this, and when I say biblical numerology, and you can study this yourself, by the way, very easily. If you want to go, well, how do we know 5 is the number of grace in the Bible? Go through the scriptures, do a word search for the number 5, and see where the word is used. See how often it's used, and look at the context of the number 5, and you get a sense of why Rick would say 5 is the number of grace in the Bible. Here's a couple of examples. In Genesis chapter 43 through 45, Joseph gives gives Benjamin, his younger brother, he gives him five times as much food as everyone else. The next time we see it in Genesis 45, he gives Benjamin five sets of clothing. You skip on over to the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 14, 5,000 men were fed by five loaves and a couple of fish. And it's interesting that as the number five shows up in Scripture, you get this picture each time of grace. Of abundance, of of giving. So five is a number of grace in the Bible. Well, six in the Bible is a very specific and very clear number. Six is the number of a man. Six is the number of man. It is the number of humanity. On what day was man created? Day six. And the book of Revelation chapter 13 verse 18 says something that people would mystify, but it's very plain and simple. 
Here is wisdom, John writes in Revelation 13, 18. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. Oh, here we go. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. And people throughout the last 2,000 years have tried to figure out, who is that? What does that mean? We can find out who is Antichrist by finding out he's got this number and what this number has to do with him. Gang, it's as simple as this. John is saying the beast, Antichrist, is not a beast. He will be a man. 666 is just making it very clear he is 6 and not 7. He will be Antichrist. He will be like Christ. He will come across as a Messiah in the world. But he is not Christ. He is a man. He stops at the end of six. He never gets to seven, the number for perfection. So six is just the number of a man. And that 666 title that's handed to Antichrist is very clearly John saying, Antichrist will just be a man who is Satan-possessed. So six is the number of humanity. Five is the number of grace. How about eleven? Well, eleven is a number that's interesting in the Bible. It indicates disorder. Disorder. It's not quite twelve, like the twelve sons of Israel or the twelve apostles. It's eleven. It's not quite there. And it's somewhat disorderly. In Acts chapter one, we have the interesting picture of the eleven apostles after the suicide of Judas. And Peter stands up and says, this is not right, this is uncomfortable, and, you know, we have a place that's empty here at the table, we've got to have 12 of us, and number 12 has to be someone who's walked with us with Jesus. And you may remember the story, they cast lots, and they came up with Matthias. Well, my own opinion on this, but we never hear from Matthias again. I'm sure he's a great guy, he probably did great ministry. But I don't believe Matthias was supposed to be number 12. I don't believe God wanted them to cast lots, roll the dice, and see who was going to be the 12th apostle. I believe it was Paul. And God called Paul. And God brought in the 12th apostle. But all that aside, it's 11 apostles in Acts chapter 1, 11 indicating disorder. So you have 5, the number of grace. You have 6, the number of a man. And you have 11, the number of disorder. And you see how that is kind of already working out a picture here. Man and grace, and how does that work? And it's, it doesn't quite make sense. Reading on in verse 10, <clears throat> we'll make sense out of this. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the first set. And 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. Okay, we're back to 50. Jubilee, freedom, salvation. All right. And you shall make 50 clasps of bronze. And you shall put the clasps into the loops and join the tent together so that it will be a unit. Brass rings, brass clasps. What does bronze or brass speak of in the Bible? Any ideas? It's judgment. It's judgment. The bronze altar on which judgment was meted out for the people of Israel. Brass or bronze in Scripture, throughout Scripture, and you will see it over and over. When bronze is used, when brass is used, it speaks of judgment. And so we have this picture on the second covering, this goat's hair covering. We have a black covering with the numbers of grace, man, and disorder along with the medal of judgment. Keep going. Look at verse 12. The overlapping part that is left over in the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that is left over shall lap over the back of the tabernacle. And the cubit on one side and the cubit on the other of what is left over in the length of the curtains of the tent shall lap over the sides of the tabernacle on one side and on the other to cover it. The eleventh curtain, again, laps over the back. 
and laps over the sides, but it will itself be covered by the next two curtains. But in the front of the tabernacle, as I said before, we will see this black goat's hair curtain when it is folded back. Every time the priest entered the tabernacle, he would see, before he saw the beauty that was inside, he would see these black curtains. He would see them folded back and likely be reminded of the blackness, the darkness of sin. The sin of a man that requires God's grace. The sin that calls forth judgment. This picture here is very stark. And as we look closely again at this second covering, we again see Jesus. On the inside, the colorful beauty of Christ, the gold of His deity, the liberty that He offers, and freedom from sin. But how did He do it? He did it at the cross. When Jesus hung up on the cross, what happens? Matthew 25 or 27 verse 45 tells us the sky went black for several hours. There was utter darkness when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The quote directly from Psalm 22 that we read before. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The reason why any of us can sit here tonight knowing our sin, knowing the blackness that was once ours to claim as our own, the only reason we can come before the Father is we have the covering of Jesus. He took that blackness on himself, that roughness. Oh, and goat's hair. A goat's hair covering. Does that remind you of something else in Scripture? Does it remind you of Adam and Eve? Who else does it remind you of? John the Baptist ran around in a goat's hair covering. What did Israel do when it came, came time for sacrifice? There was something we talked about a few Sundays back having to do with a couple of goats. Remember one of them was called the scapegoat. The scapegoat. The scapegoat was one of two goats that was driven out and the sin of Israel was placed on this goat and it was driven out alive into the wilderness. The second goat was sacrificed to God and now we have a goat's hair, a black goat's hair covering that is the second covering over the tabernacle. The black goat hair, the number of grace, the number of man, the number of disorder all picturing this awful and yet wonderful weekend of sacrifice on the cross. Leviticus 16 verse 9 and 10 tells us about the scapegoat, telling us Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But on the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell, it shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. By the way, one more thing. How much of the curtain was actually seen? Only one eleventh. If you look at this 11 foot curtain, there was a small amount. One eleventh of the curtain is what was actually seen when folded back and opened. And this is interesting to me. Jesus lived how many years? 33. How many of those years were actually seen? I mean, when we read it in Scripture. About three. One eleventh. One eleventh of Jesus' life we actually see. One eleventh of this second covering we actually see with our own eyes, just like this door of the tabernacle. And this door of the tabernacle, interesting, Jesus in John 10 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. I'm the door. 
I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. And gang, a Hebrew listening to Jesus say, I am the door, could very likely go directly to the tabernacle, the most holy place that a Hebrew person could think of, and picture the door. And Jesus says, I am the door. The black goat hair covering, the second covering, seen at the door, and the sinful black scapegoat took on the judgment of God. Verse 14, going on, you shall make, and it gives us two more coverings quickly here, you shall make a covering for the tent of ram skin dyed red, and a covering of porpoise skins above. The third skin is ram skins dyed red. Quickly review. Curtain number one. Curtain number one, the fine twisted linen, speaking of the righteousness of Jesus. Curtain number two, this black goat's hair covering, speaking of sin and judgment. And here we get to curtain number three. And what is it that sin and judgment needs more than anything else? It needs a covering. It needs a covering of blood, ram skins, dyed red, covering the blackness of the second cover, which represents sin. It is a perfect picture of the blood that covers over the blackness of my sin. Now you might ask, well, why a ram? Why not lambskin dyed red? Why is it specifically a ram? Go back to Genesis 22 in your minds. Think about this. Abraham takes Isaac up Mount Moriah. He gets up to the top of Mount Moriah and there he prepares to sacrifice Isaac. We know of Mount Moriah by another name. It's called Calvary. In fact, it is thought by some, and I am in full agreement here, that it is very likely that the place of Abraham's almost sacrifice of Isaac is the place where the crucifixion would take place so many hundreds of years later. And so Abraham takes Isaac up there to to kill him, to offer him, to sacrifice him. But God stays Abraham's hand. And what was it that Abraham said prophetically to Isaac before going up the mountain? Isaac had the wood, and Isaac said, Father, we have wood for the sacrifice. What are we going to sacrifice? And he says, God will provide a ram. A ram. God will provide a ram. And immediately, when God stayed Abraham's hand, before the knife came down, the angel says, no, stop. God says, it's good, we're all right. I believe that you have faith in me. I see it now. And Abraham looks over, and in the thicket was a ram which he immediately turned around and sacrificed to the Lord. Ram skins dyed red. Which is why, by the way, in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee that we just talked about, the Jewish priest would blow a horn, a ram's horn, a shofar, which symbolized a couple of things. One, that it was freedom, and the second thing, that it was shofar so good. Because the ram provided the freedom, just seeing if you're with me, The ram provided freedom for Isaac by taking his place. And so the people in the hearing of the shofar when it was blown in Jubilee would not only remember their freedom and they could go home now, but they would also remember and know the story of Isaac, the freedom of Isaac, who was saved by a ram. And so God comes up with this third beautiful covering, the covering over the blackness of the second covering, ramskin dyed red. And this one's so obvious we're just going to move on. Ramskin dyed red. It is a picture of the sacrifice, again, of Christ. Covering number four, the fourth and final covering on the tabernacle. Verse 14 tells us it was a covering of porpoise skins. I read that and went, what? 
porpoise skins. Some translations, King James, I believe, says badger skins. That's a mistranslation. That's not a good translation of the word. Other versions will say sea cows. I'd love to see a sea cow. I mean, just a normal cow is funny enough, but a sea cow, that's got to be a funky-looking creature. What we're talking about in the Red Sea and in the Nile, there was a creature, may, I don't know, still exists today, but there was a creature that was like a whale, somewhat whale-like, that was called a sea cow, or translated here, a porpoise, and it was these skins that the people of Israel had, and God says, I want you to use these skins to cover over as the final covering over my beautiful tabernacle. What did that covering look like? It was common. It would have been tough and leathery, but after 40 years of travel in the desert, with the exposure to heat, wind, rain, the, the light of God above it, and all this stuff that porpoise skin, that sea cow skin, would have been pretty beat up, pretty common looking, nothing special to look at. Now I would have thought, Lord, when Israel is marching through different lands and they're setting up their tabernacle and the nations are seeing it, that you would want to have the beauty on the outside. That you'd want the nations to go, wow, look at the gold clasp and look at the scarlet and the blue and the white and, and all the color here, it's, it's, it's gorgeous, the purple. But God says, no, no. The beauty is on the inside. The outside, you have this heavy-duty, thick, leathery covering, which, by the way, is a perfect skin for the outer covering. If you think about it, it provides the best protection and the best provision, as does the Lord. When we finished our house, or most of it, one of the things we did when the carpet went down was we went out and bought this carpet, this tacky carpet stuff. It was, looked like this queen. You've seen that this queen. It's real dark. And we laid it, rolled it out over the carpet so we could walk on the carpet and not mess up the carpet. And they say after a few days, you know, you're supposed to take it up. And we did that after it was okay to walk on the carpet. But we put that down as a protective covering. And that's what this fourth covering is. It protects all of the other three coverings. It protects the tabernacle. And it speaks very clearly of how we have security and protection when we are with the Father, inside the holy place, in the holy of holies, close to God, that is the place where our greatest and strongest protection comes. When we're next to the Lord. Now when we're out wandering around in the courtyard just doing stuff, we're out in the world, we don't have that kind of protection, that covering. But when we walk with the Lord, when we are close to Him, we have security in the divinity of how He covers us. Now, it's interesting to me that the nations looking at this tabernacle set up would not have understood. Again, only the priests could go inside and see the inside as it was. But the nations wouldn't even have had a clue that there were four coverings at all. They just would have seen the top covering and wondered, what's the deal with that? What kind of a god would just use sea cow hides for the covering of his temple? It's common, it's plain, it's boring. They wouldn't get it and nobody gets it until they come into the Lord. Nobody gets Jesus until they come to that place of faith. People look at Christians even today and think they're just a little nuts or they're just a little weak or they just need a crutch and they don't get it. They don't understand. The nations do not understand by looking on the outside. Now, unfortunately, the church, we've tried really hard to make the churches beautiful on the outside, haven't we? One of the things I love about this barn is on the outside, it's just as plain and varnished as it is on the inside. And the wonder of what God is doing here has nothing to do with the surrounding. It has everything to do with the hearts and the people and the spirit. 
But you look at this barn, it's a barn. You look at the tabernacle, it was covered by sea cowhide. Nothing special, nothing particularly beautiful to look at. And again, the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of Christianity is misunderstood by the world. It seems common to the nations. It's boring, it's dull, it's even beaten down to the non-believing person. It just doesn't look that inviting. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul said, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And there are times when practically from the look of things on the outside, Christianity doesn't seem to add up. Why would you waste all that time? You could sleep in on Sunday morning. You could go to the game. You could have the whole day free. What are you doing wasting your time with this church stuff? It doesn't make sense. The whole idea of giving doesn't make sense. You're going to give to a barn church. You're going to give to a missionary. You might not. How do you know you're not getting ripped off with your money? The whole idea of the way Christ changes everything turns it all upside down. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount. It's a counterculture. It doesn't make sense. Hey, if someone hits you on the side of the face, turn around and give them the other side. If someone steals your jacket, go home, see if you've got another one, you can lend them as well. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, We're the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Listen to this. To one we're the aroma from death to death. To the other, we're an aroma of life to life. You see, as a Christian, when you're with other Christians, especially in these times of worship and prayer and Bible study, you're surrounded by life and it feels right and you understand it. You're inside the tabernacle. You're in the beautiful place. You see the cherubim on the walls. You see the gorgeous colors. You understand the beauty of what the Lord is doing. But man, when you're an unbeliever on the outside, you look and it's common and it doesn't make sense. Why would I want to be involved with that? And even Jesus himself The Bible tells us, Isaiah 53, verse 2, had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Now, there's some guys who've done some math, and they're probably wrong, but I'll throw it out to you anyway. They figured out that with the number of pounds of spices that were placed on the body of Jesus, there was an actual formula for that. So many pounds per size and weight of of the body. And they're saying from one set of, of, of things that Jesus may have been around 5'3 or 5'4. And by the number of pounds of spices that was placed on his body in the burial, he was probably around 200 pounds. 5'3, 200 pounds. <laughs> Jesus? Was he really? That's not the point. The point is, he was so common in his look that there was nothing about his physical appearance that attracted people to him. People were not attracted to the Lord by how he looked. They were attracted to his spirit. They were attracted to his teaching. They were attracted to the fire in his eyes as he spoke the word, as he was the word of God. And the physical had nothing to do with it. And so it is with us today. And so it is on this fourth covering of the tabernacle. And that's how God does things. He loves to take things that look so common and so boring and so plain, like most of us, on the outside and work miracles and again the supernatural on the inside Jesus wore common skin unimpressive humanity nothing special to behold but the further in we go as with the tabernacle the further in you go the more impressive the more beautiful the more wonderful Jesus is to behold four coverings 
The most beautiful reserved for the very inside for the holy places. Now, let me just ask you a question. Are you bored yet? Well, you should be. Look at verse 15. Then you shall make the boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood, standing upright. The Bible speaks here of boards, and the boards, my friends, are a picture of you and me. We're bored. Boards. Plural. Verse, 20, verse 16 going on. Ten cubits shall be the length of each board, and one and a half cubits the width of each board. And verse 17, there shall be two tenons for each board, fitted to one another. Thus you shall do for all the boards of the tabernacle. You shall make the boards for the tabernacle, twenty boards for the south side. Verse 19, you shall make forty sockets of silver. Okay, we saw gold before, we saw brass before, now we're up to silver. Forty sockets of silver under the twenty boards. Two sockets under one board for its two tenons, and two sockets under another board for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, twenty boards. And there are forty sockets of silver. Two sockets under one board, and two sockets under another board. Verse 22, for the rear of the tabernacle, to the west, you shall make six boards. Verse 23, you shall make two boards for the corners of the tabernacle at the rear, and they shall be double underneath, and together they shall be complete to its top to the first ring, thus it shall be with both of them, they shall form two corners. There shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under one board and two sockets under another board, and then you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards of one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle to the rear side to the west. Are you bored yet? Reading on. Verse 28. The middle bar in the center of the boards shall pass through from end to end. And you shall overlay the boards with gold. And make their rings of gold as holders for the bars. And you shall overlay the bars with gold. What we're seeing here in these boards are the things that kind of held up and are, and are moved throughout. And if you look back, you can almost see boards on the outside and on the inside. There were boards that went all the way around in between the curtains that the curtains were attached to that helped the curtains to stay up as well. But on these boards, there were sockets of silver, not gold. There, were, there was gold that was overlaid on the boards, but there were sockets of silver. And these boards speak of you and of me. The boards are pictures of people in Christ. Well, what do you mean? They're made of desert acacia wood, which speaks clearly of humanity. We've talked about that before. The acacia wood and the Ark of the Covenant covered over by gold speaks of both the humanity and the deity of Christ. These boards speak again of humanity. Acacia wood. It's thorny. It's gnarly. It's rough. It's cracked. It's like a lot of us. A little cracked. It's like my stair railing in my kitchen cabinets, which I want to invite you all over afterwards for coffee tonight to see, but I can't, Cheryl would kill me. <laughs> my stair railing, Andrew Campbell did this. He put our stair railing together, he built our cabinets, and it looks so cool, but it's so gnarly. It, it's just the wood is, is kind of goes up and we're, we're kidding with Andrew all the time he put a door in, in, our, in our pantry and it's got a big old gnarly hole right in the middle of it and he put the door in and, and you know we love this stuff we want it to be real, real casual and real woodsy inside and I, he put the door up and I went Andrew do something about that hole it's terrible there's a big crack down the side and, and these railings they're, they're so rough and just I mean can't you smooth them down a bit soften them up a little bit 
And we could joke and kidded about that. But it looks really cool. But it's, it looks cool because it's just real looking. Which is what we wanted in the first place. And that's what's going on here. The acacia wood is just rough, cracked, real wood. The acacia wood, guys, these had to be cut down. But here in the tabernacle, they are standing upright together. They are all the exact same height. They're 15 feet by 2 feet, just as we all stand exactly the same, equal before the Lord. And here's the most obvious clue of what these boards speak of, that they speak of you and I, and that is that they are attached by sockets of silver. And silver in the Bible speaks of redemption. 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 I'll let you just do your own search on that. I'm not going to back that up tonight. We've talked about that before. The picture of silver in the Bible and how it speaks of redemption. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Peter says, You also are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now think this all through just for a moment. Stay with me just a second longer. We're almost there. The boards are attached to the curtains on the south side. Verse 18. They're attached to the curtains on the north side, verse 20. And to the rear or the west side of the tabernacle, verse 22. What's missing? We have north, south, east, or no, west, and no east. There's no east side. And the reason there's no east there is because the east was the east side was left wide open. The front of the tabernacle always faces and this is by God's design and by His plan and His command. The front of the tabernacle always faced east. Whatever direction east is here. It all that way. Straight? Then, oh, so the front of the barn opens to the east. The front of the tabernacle opened to the east. And wherever the people went, wherever they wandered, wherever God led them, whenever they sat down and began to put the tabernacle up, the front of the tabernacle always opened up to the east. So you have these boards going around, the north and south side and the west side, but the east side was the opening. Why is this so important? Any guesses as to why it opened up to the east? sun rises in the east. The sun rises in the east, but it's not just the sun that rises in the east, it's the sun who will rise in the east. Flip in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 43. Ezekiel 43. I wanted to tell Cheryl about this all day long and she had to run home. So I'll have to tell her when I get, get home tonight. It's funny, we're driving along and, and she says, so what are we going to talk about tonight? And I start to tell her. She says, no, don't tell me. I want to hear it in Bible study. I don't want you to ruin it so I get, you know, so I've already heard this. So I couldn't tell her. We're driving along and I'm going, she drives quiet. This is what I wanted to tell her. Okay, Ezekiel chapter 43 and verse 1. Ezekiel 43 verse 1. This is a vision Ezekiel has. Now, Ezekiel's already had a vision, a tragic vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. And that's exactly what happened. The Shekinah glory of God that up and left the temple. Well, listen to this. Then, he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. This is the front. And behold, the glory of God of Israel 
was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Exactly, by the way, how John describes Jesus' voice in Revelation chapter 1 and 2. A voice like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw. Like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river of Shabar. And I fell on my face. Verse 4. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Ezekiel's vision was that the glory of the Lord would return to the temple in Jerusalem, would fill the house, and would come in through the eastern gate. And it's all been held and understood by the Jews based on biblical prophecy that when Messiah comes, he will come from the east. He will come in the eastern gate, also called in Jerusalem the beautiful gate. And Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 tells us in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Matthew 24 verse 26 Jesus said for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And Psalm 24 7 that we sang at first tonight lift up your heads O gates and be lifted up O ancient doors that the King of Glory may come in. Who is this King of Glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And biblical prophecy tells us He will come through the eastern gate, the gate that in the tabernacle was to remain open, but which right now is shut. In fact, in Jerusalem, if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll see the eastern gate is shut up, closed. It's walled in. This was done, I believe, and I, I may be off on this. I'll check it and get back to you, but I believe it was Hadrian, the Roman emperor, who did this. Does that sound right, Jim? And, and there is now a Muslim graveyard that sits in front of the eastern gate, which would be a front to the Jews. Because of the graveyard there, you know, no Messiah is going to cross the graveyard to come into the eastern gate that's walled up. And so some men have worked very hard to get that gate and shut it up. And what's really funny to me is in so doing, they fulfill biblical prophecy. They did exactly what God said would happen. Ezekiel 44, verse 1. Then he brought me back by way of the outer gate to the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut. This shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. And men trying to keep God out fulfilled God's prophecy by shutting up that gate. Well, that gate is going to be opened. Do you think any man with any design or any power can keep Jesus from blowing the gate right off its hinges and entering through the east? He's going to do it. It's the promise that we have in Scripture. He's coming back by the way of the east. He will triumphantly return through this very gate. But what's great to me, as we finish up tonight, is that the gates of God's holy temple, once, once the whole thing is taken care of and is said and done, the gates will always remain open. Revelation 21-25 I saw no temple in the new Jerusalem, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. 
And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. In other words, since there's no night, and in the daytime the gates are never closed, the gates are never closed. Always open. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We will be free. In the temple that is the Lord, in the new Jerusalem to come, we will be free to go in and out at our leisure. But my friends, my guess is, most of us are just going to want to stay in. We're going to want to be on the inner part, in the holiest place, as close to the Lord as possible. Exodus chapter 26, verse 30, the last verse we'll read tonight. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown in the mountain. God is still crafting a portrait in this tabernacle. There's more to come. There's more yet to see. But for now, we thank God for the supernatural word. For as Luke 16.31, Jesus said, tells us, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Father, we have listened to Moses and the prophets tonight. And I pray that we have had our hearts illuminated again to the power of this portrait before us as we learn to keep looking at Jesus and seeing Him in all things and understanding in what may seem to be a common thing blueprints for a temple of sorts a map for a tabernacle that we would see the one who tabernacled among us Jesus Himself that we would be encouraged that that though His beauty was covered with blackness and the blackness being our sin that His blood is covered over that like a ramskin dyed red and that those of us who come to you by His blood have the covering, the strength the protection, the provision and Father would you be with us the rest of this week as you have been already remind us of your grace remind us of your love And remind us, Lord, that all things are culminating in one person. And it is the person we have worshipped and continue to do so, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.